So yes, John 6, page A91 of the Pew Bible, if you're using that. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that those people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth, worth of bread would not be enough to feed uh, for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, and about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When Jesus saw the sign that he had done, they said, or sorry, when the people saw the sign that he had done, uh, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not, come, uh, had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about for three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad... Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was uh, at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum and seeking, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, because, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not, work, uh, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that it endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who, who uh, he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one... is uh, For the bread... For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come, out from heaven, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing at that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread, of, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, this not, is, this, uh, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws, uh, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone, uh, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, "How can this man give us flesh to eat?" So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, uh, because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples had heard of it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself, and the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are the Spirit and life. But there are some, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were. Uh, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by, uh, granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you and, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word. Lord, I thank you that we could all come together and read your word and be able to understand it. I, be, I pray that you would be with the sermon today, be with Pastor Brian, allow the Spirit to speak through him, and allow us to be able to receive an understanding of your word that will help us throughout our day-to-day lives. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right. Thank you, Jaden. He's just back, so he hasn't been here with us for our study in John, in which, you know, mostly we cover a chapter every week anyway, so it wasn't just you. <laughs> it was assigned uh, a whole chapter to read, so... Uh, but it's good to uh, be able to be back in John today after a little, um, a little detour on Mother's Day there in Psalm 131. Uh, this morning, um, I do want to start uh, a little differently than we have before. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 116 here just briefly. Um, we have the kind of mixed news. Obviously, it's sad news. When anyone passes away, uh, yet 
We sorrow not as those who are without hope. And so our hope is rooted in the fact that we have trusted in Jesus Christ and that though we die, it is not death ultimately that we face, but the newness of life in the presence of Jesus Christ. True life, eternal life. And so with, with sorrow and yet joy for him, uh, I have to let you know that Matthew Withers passed away this last week. So on Tuesday, and uh, I was able to talk to Patsy uh, on uh, Wednesday night, and uh, they are in a good spirits. All her kids are there with them. They're still down in Orlando. Uh, they plan to have a memorial service there and then return up here and have a memorial service here as well. And so in light of that, I wanted to read uh, to you Psalm 116 and remind us of the hope that we have even in death. And just remind us of Matthew and his hope. The psalmist writes, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. And if any of you knew Matthew, he was one who called upon the Lord, who trusted in the Lord, who knew the love of the Lord and expressed His love for the Lord. The psalmist goes on to say, The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Matthew was struggling with cancer. He'd been battling it for a while. He knew distress and anguish, and yet, as the psalmist says, so he expressed to me his desire to use his cancer for the glory of God and trust in him. The psalmist goes on, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. And when I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And truly, that is true of Matthew. His soul has returned to the true Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ. No longer does he suffer from... The, the, the death that comes from sin, from the tears that comes from pain, from the stumbling that sin brings, even as the psalmist writes, for you have delivered my soul from death. Oh, truly, he died physically, but that's just a temporal thing. In Christ, his life is eternal. My eyes, you've delivered my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. That is our hope. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is but a shadow. We are but a vapor. We are grass that die and wither away. But before God now, He stands in the true land, the true living before God. The psalmist goes on to say, I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all my unkind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And the fact, as we have sung this morning, lifting up our cups of salvation, praising Him for all that He has done, Matthew Withers stands in the presence of God this morning, lifting up His praises as well. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Precious. In the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. They come to him. Through our death, we get transported into the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus 
Christ. How glorious. It's why Paul says, you know, to stay with you is good, but to go to be with the Lord, oh, how much better. What would I choose? There Matthew stands today. Oh Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. We don't know what freedom is like. We have not truly experienced the absolute freedom that we will have when we stand before Jesus Christ. It's coming yet. We experience parts of it now, but it's coming yet. We will be free to serve God, to glorify God, to enjoy God in ways we have never imagined. We'll be able to understand fully what it means to love the Lord our God with all heart, heart and soul and mind and strength because our sin is no more. So I'll offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will call on your name. I will pay my vows to you in the presence of my people and in the courts of your house. In the midst, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And truly, this is but an image of the court of God's house. Each, each true church preaching the gospel faithfully is but an image of the court of God's house. The temple in Jerusalem was but an image of the court of God's house. And Matthew stands not in the image any longer, not in the picture, but in reality before God. How glorious. And Matthew will be greatly missed. He was a wonderful friend an encouragement to, uh, to me spiritually and a, a wonderful deacon who served our church well and he will be greatly missed. I want to just ask that would you join me in just praying for his family at this time and thanking God for the salvation he gives. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the salvation you give to us and the testimony that we have that Matthew Withers truly, truly is standing in your presence today. Lord, the, the sorrow is mixed with that rejoicing for you are good and do good and you bring your saints into glory. And though death seems often so scary, it is not the end, but the very beginning of a glorious life with you. I thank you for your truth and for your faithfulness in that. Lord, we... We just lift up the Wither family right now. We pray for Patsy and thank you for her, her expressions of trust in you. That you would continue to give her strength even in her loss and in her aptness. Oh, the, the decades that they have spent together. And may the absence only cause her to draw closer to you. Knowing that this absence is just but for a moment. But one day we will all be present with you. Lord, we pray for the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Lord, we ask that you would continue to give grace and mercy. Help them as they suffer loss. Some of them, that their hearts would be turned to you in hope. That you would use the death of your saint to bring about new life. Some of his kids who have not yet trusted you, who not believed in you, Lord, that they would believe today. We thank you for the opportunity now to look into your word and declare the glories of Jesus Christ. May it give us 
hope in this life and hope for the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. Today we're going to continue our study here in the Gospel of John, proclaiming Jesus in John's Gospel. And really, just as a reminder, John wrote his Gospel to proclaim Jesus, specifically to Jewish unbelievers. And there's a lot of Jewish aspects to this Gospel, and yet there's so much in the Gospel that benefits any unbeliever and believers alike. And John's Gospel is meant to help us to see and believe, to follow and proclaim Jesus ourself. And so we come to uh, John chapter 6 as part of a, a series of, of four uh, Jewish feasts that John is seeking to connect Jesus to and pull out truths and aspects about Jesus. In chapter 5, we saw uh, J- Jesus in light of the Sabbath, and here we're going to see Jesus in light of the Passover. And then um, in it, in the next week, we'll look at the Feast of Booths, and then in a couple of weeks after that, we'll look at uh, the Feast uh, of Deliverance, or not, not Deliverance, Dedication, sorry. So, Feast of Dedication of the Temple. But today, we're going to be looking at the, the cycle of feasts in the Passover, and, and we notice that John introduces this section with this idea. Verse 4, now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, connected to uh, the Passover was uh, something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was part of the Passover feast. And so you may think about this chapter and think, why is there such emphasis on bread? Normally, when we think about the Passover, we think about the lamb, right, that was slain, that's killed. It, it, It happened while the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And during that slavery in Egypt, God had sent plagues, and the last plague... Uh, All the firstborn children were going to be killed. And to save them, God called upon His people to cook a meal. And part of that was to slaughter a lamb and to put His blood on the doorposts so that uh, as as God passed through, His angel passed through, that uh, they would see the blood and pass over that home. And then they were all supposed to be gathered in that home. They were supposed to eat the lamb. They also were supposed to make unleavened bread uh, that they would eat with that lamb. Un- unleavened bread was meant to communicate the fact that they were ready to go. They weren't waiting for the leaven to fully rise or anything. They were making quick bread so that they could show that they were ready to go. And, and also part of that was they were, supposed to, they were supposed to pack and be ready. They were supposed to have their walking shoes on and their walking clothes and have their staff ready because they were going to leave Egypt. It was all about God's provision for God's people. He was providing them a means by which to be safe, and He was providing them with food for their journey ready to go out of Egypt. Out of that Passover, that first Passover that occurred, God institutes the Feast of the Passover. They were meant to remember it. It was the first uh, of, of the Jewish months in which they were supposed to hold the Passover, and they were meant to remember what God had done. And part of that was this Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were supposed to rid leaven out of their house, clean everything, and get all the leaven out, make their unleavened bread, and only eat unleavened bread uh, for over a week, and then they would come back and celebrate with a big feast at the end. And so here is what's going on. They're now having this Passover feast, this feast of the Jews. In this, in this Passover feast, often people, again, are coming to Jerusalem. 
just like we saw in chapter 5. So the same thing is true. Their people are moving in toward Jerusalem. But Jesus here actually moves out away from Jerusalem this time and comes to the Sea of Galilee, which is called the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, the Sea of Galilee actually had many, many names. And the reason why it was often called the Sea of Tiberias is because there was a city that was planted there, started there, uh, by uh, Herod that was called Tiberius because he wanted to have it in good with the emperor Tiberius. So we'll plant a city. We'll start a city and we'll name it after you. The emperor wasn't in power very long, so, uh, but it retained the name Tiberius. And so Jesus moves away from where everybody is gathering to Galilee and begins to do some ministry here beside the Sea of Galilee. The structure of chapter 6 is like that of chapter 5. The first thing we see in chapter 6 is we see two two stories that are given, two instances of Jesus performing miracles, and that's how we saw chapter 5 start as well. We see the, the miracles that he does by healing the man by the pool of Bethesda. And so now we see he's going to feed well, we always say he feeds 5,000 people, but this is 5,000 men. So, and then there was women and children with them. But he doesn't number the women and children. Some estimate it could, been, it could have been all the way up to 20,000 people based upon women and the children that would have come along with them and families. So, but it's definitely more than 5,000. Secondly, we see that he not only does that sign, but he also does another sign. Um, here, Jesus is walking on the water, and we're probably more familiar with the, the synoptic gospel's tale of it, because here John leaves out the part that Peter walks on the water with Jesus, but we all remember that, right? Yeah, so, so because G- John has a different point than the other gospels, and so he leaves that out, but he has this, and then we come to verse 22 and so on, and we see Jesus begin to teach, and that's the same thing that happened in chapter 5. He does the signs, and then he begins to teach about them. And so he's, this, this way that John is building out how he's proclaiming his Gospels. Presents Jesus' signs, and then he has Jesus teaching on those signs. And then we see that John gives a conclusion here um, to uh, this section in verse 60 and on, and how the disciples respond to the teaching. So we have the sign of the feeding, and we have the sign of the walking on water. And I think it's important that we understand how they connect to the Passover. If, if this is part of the cycle of feast, then John wants us to connect it to the Passover. And, and he helps us out in Jesus' teaching by connecting Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 with Moses and the provision of Manna. Obviously, the bread connects the unleavened bread, but also he connects it to what's going on around the Passover when Moses, well, God, as Jesus is going to correct everyone, God provides manna, not Moses. But then there's the sign of the walking on the water, and, and how does that connect with the Passover and what God does as a result? Remember, there, the Passover was the salvation of God's people, the grace he gave them. They're ready to leave Egypt, and what happens as they leave Egypt? They come to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea and they walk on dry land across. God saves them from the armies of Pharaoh. 
And yet here what we see is Jesus doesn't need the waters to be parted. Jesus walks right on top of them. And so we see there is a connection with the Passover and what happens with Moses and what is going on here. The point, ultimately, of the Passover being brought in to bear and of all that God is going to show us here in Jesus Christ is that God provides life for His people. The Passover was the salvation of the firstborn. It was life given back to them as the death angel passed over them. But, but beyond that as well, the Passover was meant to, to help them see that God was actually delivering them out of the slavery of Egypt. A new life was being given to them with new provisions of nourishment through the manna that God gives, with new provisions of safety. So while the army of Pharaoh is coming after them, God provides them a way of safety through the Red Sea. And in turn, as the armies follow them, he does not give safety to Pharaoh's army as they are crushed under the waves. God provides life for his people. And so this morning, my main point is this. We proclaim Jesus as God's sole provision for life that divides true disciples from false disciples. We proclaim Jesus as God's sole provision for life that divides true disciples from false disciples. So here is, here is the signs that Jesus gives. So as Jesus comes to this place beside the Sea of Galilee, it's a, it's a wilderness, it's a deserted place, and it's not near a city necessarily. It's probably on the east side, south of Bethsaida. And so Jesus goes on top of a mountain, a, a hill, or something elevated, and begins to teach. And as they were sitting there, and as the people were we're, we're gathered around to hear Jesus. You know, it, it begins to get later in the day. And um, in the Synoptic Gospels, we're told that the dis- disciples begin to get a little concerned about what people, maybe we should send them away so they can find what to eat. Here, John emphasizes what Jesus says to Philip. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Philip is actually from a nearby city here, Bethsaida. And so that's probably why Jesus asked Philip, but we notice that there's another reason why he asked Philip. He asked him to test him, it says here, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. It's not as if Jesus was unaware of what was going to happen. In fact, we could probably have discerned that from the text because we go down to verse 15 and we see Jesus knows the thoughts of everybody. (laughs) He perceives that they were going to make him king. And so he withdraws himself. So Jesus knows what's going on, what he plans to do. Philip, in turn, having seen a lot of what Jesus is able to do, right? I mean, he was with him when he turns water into wine at the marriage in Cana. He knows that Jesus has power to produce food-type items. Yet, what does he say? 200 denarii. It's like eight weeks' worth of work would not buy enough bread for each of them to even get a little bit. He's like, to, to Philip, this seemed like an impossible task. There's no way that we could do this. And then we have, uh, we have John brings up Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, one of the disciples, who had decided on his own to look for some other means of providing food, but all he found was one boy 
with five barley loaves, which was loaves that poor people ate then, and two fish, which were probably small fish that were used as kind of a relish for the bread. So it wasn't like they were huge fish. He wasn't carrying around like some tuna or anything. Small fish. And notice what he says about them. But what are they for so many? Again, not only did Philip seem to think it impossible, but Andrew seemed to think it impossible as well. How would Jesus provide for so many people? And yet we read in verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the people sat down, about 5,000 in number. I'm sorry, so the men sat down. There were 5,000 men. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. You know, Peter's like, or Philip is like, if we had, if we had eight weeks worth of salary, we, could, we couldn't buy enough for them to just get a little bit. But notice what is said here. They had as much as they wanted. And not only that, Jesus says, now go gather all the leftovers. Go gather them up, you know, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. I mean, here, here Jesus not only just provides for them but he provides for them abundantly. So much so that they have all these leftovers. Like they ate their fill and then they were thinking, man, I've eaten so much I just can't eat anymore. And yet there's still more there from five little barley loaves and two small fish. It seems right that the people would respond and say, this is the prophet who has come into the world. They're referring to Deuteronomy's promise that a greater prophet would come than Moses. And so they are looking at Jesus as possibly being the one. And yet, what do we read? Their desire was to take him by force and make him king. Their desire was to have a king who would rule over them politically and take care of Rome and any other enemies. And yet, this is not the plan that Jesus has. Jesus is the spiritual Messiah, the spiritual king, not the political king. This is not the time for that. And so Jesus withdraws himself to the mountain. It's interesting that Jesus, or that John says here in verse 14, the people saw the sign that he had done. And that caused them to say, he must be this prophet. Yet we read a little later that Jesus says, you did not see the sign. Because while they saw what was happening, they did not understand why it was actually happening. The point Jesus is going to make is that you have missed the point of this sign. It wasn't done just to fill your bellies. But that's what they want. I mean, if Jesus had just come to fill people's bellies, we would have lots of food. (laughs) Even today, we would have lots. But that's not why he came. That's not the point. And the fact is, when we go to the Synoptic Gospels, we read that 
the disciples themselves didn't understand the sign of the feeding either, which I think is why we have this second sign here that's not for everyone, but it's meant specifically for the 12 apostles. And so we read here that Jesus goes away, and so the disciples are waiting for him. It's getting dark. They need to go head back to Capernaum because that's where their home base is right now. And so they get into a boat and start to head back. And still, Jesus had not yet come, and so they begin to row back when a storm comes in. It says they rowed about three or four miles, trying to get back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as they do, Jesus is walking on the sea, coming towards them. And of course, I mean, if I were them, I would respond the same way. They were frightened. You know, guys, people don't walk on the water. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. They don't do that. And uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, we're told that they thought he was a ghost or some kind of spirit walking on the water towards them and frightened them. But Jesus said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. They were so happy to have him. And then it says, immediately the boat was at the, at the land to which they were going. They had been rowing and rowing, trying to get over. They only had made it a certain amount of the way. But now that Jesus was in the boat with him, it seems like the implication here of John is that it was easy sailing to the end, reminding us of who is in command of the winds and the waves. It is Jesus Christ. And so what we have here is we have this introduction of who Jesus is through these signs. And then we come to this next part of this teaching, this teaching structure. And here, this teaching structure is very similar to John 5 again. We have his main points being given with this statement, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, We saw that in chapter 5. We're going to see it now again. We see it in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Not only that, we see it again in verse 32. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. We see those two points there. And then we see two other points that are kind of buried in what's called an inclusio. An inclusio is a literary device that opens and closes with a similar statement or similar words. If you notice, we have this in verse 35. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. This is the start of the third point that Jesus is trying to make. And it goes all the way through to verse 48, where again he says what? I am the bread of life. And buried within it, actually the verse right before, verse 47, is the truly, truly I say to you, that's pointing out his point, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then we see a second inclusio starting in verse 49. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. Notice in verse 58, what does he say again? This is the bread that came down to heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. And then buried again within that in verse 53 is that truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So this gives me four points to cover in Jesus' teaching. So the first point is this, trust in the eternal provision. Trust in the eternal provision. 
The people were baffled by the fact that Jesus was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There's only one boat, we're told, that had left and had the disciples in it, but not Jesus. And the people had gone looking for Jesus. They, they, some people had come over with boats, and so they got in them and went back over to the other side. Some of you will probably walk. And they came to find Jesus, and they found him on the other side. And they're like, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're kind of saying, how did you get here? How, how did you arrive? When, when did you cross the Sea of Galilee? They were puzzled by it. But Jesus doesn't actually answer their question. He gets to the heart of the matter, why they were coming to look for him. And that's where we get our first point, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Their desire was materialistic. Their desire was for temporary gain. Their desire was for Jesus to again fill their bellies, to to provide for their own pleasures and their own desires. But Jesus confronts them with the fact that the provision that Jesus has come to give is not the temporal provision, but the eternal provision. This temporal sign of Jesus providing food for these 5,000 plus people is meant to point them to the fact that He is the one who gives eternal provisions. And they're meant to trust in the eternal provisions given. This is what he gives. Notice verse 27. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. This is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to give eternal provisions. To give food that endures for eternal life. And why is he able to do that? Well, we have the reason right here. For on him God the Father has set his seal. God has placed his seal upon Jesus. He has certified Jesus as the one by which life comes. Eternal life. He is the one he has appointed but they miss the point. I mean, Jesus is trying to demonstrate to them what they should be doing, but notice they miss it and still are focused on the temporal aspects. So they say to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? All right, so what is it? How do we, let's do the work. We'll do the work, you know. We do the work, you provide the food, okay, we'll do it. They miss the point. And so Jesus again confronts them. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Trust in the eternal provision that God has given. Believe the one God has given you. Trust in Him. So they say to Him, now, again, you may be as confused as I do as to why they're asking that, because they just ate the other day. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? I mean, you're like, what? (laughs) Come on. He just fed you from five little barley loaves and two fish. He fed all of you and had leftovers. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. He's just like, I just gave you bread from nowhere to eat. (laughs) 
Now you, you're, you're talking about Moses. So, the, so they move on to, Jesus moves on to a second point. Before we go, the only appropriate response to the eternal provision that God gives, as Jesus says here, is to believe in or trust in Jesus Christ. He's the one that God has provided. Then Jesus moves to a second point, which is trust in the eternal provider. So they bring up Moses. He gave them food. To which Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. You're putting the emphasis on the wrong person. That is not the person who provided you with the bread. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It wasn't even Moses who gave them this temporal manna to eat and be filled, which we're going to ultimately see in a little bit. Jesus is going to remind them the fathers ate the manna, and what happened? They still died. It wasn't eternal life bread. But that's what Jesus is saying the Father is giving. He's giving the true bread. Now, the first thing that I think they struggled with here is they struggled with a minimization They slighted the feeding miracle of Jesus in a similar way that their forefathers slighted the miracle God did in giving them manna from heaven in the Old Testament. In fact, in Numbers 21.5, we read, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Speaking of the manna that was given to them from heaven. I mean, I'm thinking about that, and I'm like, that would be amazingly cool. It's like snow that you make into bread. I mean, it just seems really cool. Like, I would be amazed by that. And yet, I have the same sinful heart that they do. And what do they do? They begin to loathe the very sign and the very gift that God has given. And in similar sense, what's happening here? They're saying, where's your sign, Jesus? Where's this miracle so we can trust you? After just having been fed. Why aren't you more like Moses? Well, your forefathers didn't really speak nicely about Moses. Besides, he's not the one who gave it. God gave it, and they didn't speak nicely about him either. And now you're giving me a hard time about not showing you a miracle. But not only that, they maximized, they aggrandized Moses as the giver of the manna. Ultimately, what they do, they missed the point of the manna sign. That this is God's gracious provision to His people. And rather than embrace the fact that their God is a God who provides and cares for them and gives them life, other forefathers grumbled and complained about it. And now, even, even now, with Jesus standing before them, describing Himself, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay? He's not talking about just mere bread anymore, right? The bread that God gives is the one who comes down from heaven. He who comes. And notice how they respond. Missing the point of Jesus' feeding sign. Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus, I'm right here. And they're like, well, can you give us that bread that you're talking about, wherever it is? We'd like some of that. I mean, they completely miss the point. 
We have this for argument here in verse 33 again. The reason, the reason that the Father gives the true bread from heaven. This true bread. Not, not the manna bread. That was not the true bread. That was just a picture. In fact, the bread that Jesus gave just the day before is also a picture. It's not the true bread. It's just bread that Jesus provided. Manna, just bread that, that God had provided from heaven. Now we're told here that the Father gives the true bread. Why? For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven. It's Jesus Christ. He is life. In Him is life. Not like the other bread. God provides true bread in His Son, Jesus Christ, and yet they still don't get it. Which leads us to our third point. Jesus is God's provision of life. All right, they're not quite getting it, so Jesus is like, I'm going to be as clear as I possibly can. I am the bread of life. And this is actually the first of seven I am statements made by Jesus, connected back to the name of God given to Moses, the I am who I am. And we see Jesus here claiming that very same name, the I am who I am, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the one. Notice what he says, but I say to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. There is their biggest problem. They have seen, but they do not believe. Jesus goes on to declare some of the difficulties to their believing and some of the glories of the grace that God gives. All the Father gives come. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that cast out, I think, is, is very important for us to understand. It's not the idea of welcoming them in. But the fact that if God has God the Father has called them to come, has brought them into a relationship with Him, Jesus will keep them in. The opposite of not casting out is keeping them in. Jesus' promise here is to preserve all those that the Father gives Him. Why is that? We see again, the four there in verse 38 telling us why. Because I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus said, I'm, I didn't come to do my own will. I'm not casting anyone out that the Father gives me because I'm here to do what He called me to do. I'm here to do His will. I'm here to be obedient to Him. And so anything He gives to me, I will keep. I will cherish. Jesus is the great preserver of all who the Father gives Him. Jesus is God's provision of life. And anyone who is given that life is given it through Jesus Christ who preserves them in that life. Verse 39, 
we see that it's all been given by the Father. Here, John proclaims one of the major themes in his Gospels, the divine sovereignty of God in salvation. It's God that gives salvation to His people. It's God that gives grace. We can't demand it. We can't earn it. It's God who gives it. And from John 1 all the way through the end, John continually affirms the fact that it is salvation from God. And yet John, at the same time, so so handily parallels divine sovereignty with human responsibility. Notice this verse 40. For, because this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This responsibility here of each of us to look and see the Savior and believe in Him for eternal life. And those who believe will be saved. And this exercise of faith does not for John, the Gospel writer, make God contingent. Rather, John is quite happy to hold what we term nowadays as Combatibilism. Combatibilism, throwing out a theological term there, pitching it out there for you. Combatibilism is a term that indicates that absolute divine sovereignty of God is compatible, compatible, compatible with human responsibility, with real human choices. What is John saying here? In verse 39, he's saying it's the Father who gives all who would be saved to Jesus. The Father's the one who gives it. Yet in verse 40, parallel statement, all who look on the Son and believe in Him have eternal life. The divine sovereignty of God and salvation and the call for us to respond by believing in Jesus Christ fit together in the understanding of John. They are not incompatible with one another. Rather, they embrace one another. That there are real human choices that occur, and yet God is still divinely sovereign over all things. But the response of the Jews, they didn't care for that so much. In verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I mean, have you ever talked to somebody like that? You said one statement, and then you said a bunch of other stuff, and they're still caught on that one statement. <laughs> like that's, that's where they're back. And they said, is, is not this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them. doesn't tell us whether they were saying this out loud to, to where Jesus could hear. If they were, it kind of, kind of makes it seem like they were back there kind of grumbling, you know, mumbling to one another. And yet Jesus, again, he knows. Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, Jesus replies again with this divine sovereignty. It is God who draws, the Father who draws. And I will raise him up in the last day. And it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except me. He was from God. He has seen the Father. And we see there 
And then we see the point. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Jesus is God's provision of life. That's what they are called to believe. The point is that God has sent His provision into the world and that people who would have eternal life must embrace God's provision. So leads us to the final point. Jesus is God's only provision of life. In this last section of Jesus' teaching, He emphasizes the fact that He is the only one. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews, again, struggling with it, say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, I don't think they were really thinking Jesus was teaching about you know, uh, cannibalism or anything like that. I think here they're probably just being somewhat sarcastic and resistant towards Jesus. Or maybe arguing over what does Jesus mean figuratively by this eating of the flesh. But Jesus gives us his last point here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Here we see Jesus being exclusive. It's the exclusivity of Christianity, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, Unless you eat of this, those who don't have no life. But if you do, if you eat of this, you have life. If you participate in this, you partake of this. This is the only provision God is giving for life. The manna ultimately could not give life. The food that he's fed them could not give life. Only Jesus truly gives life. They're just meant to point to him. Verse 54 is a parallel verse to verse 40. He goes on to say, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's meant to parallel what he says in verse 40. Ultimately, Jesus is not talking about some mystical eating of things, but rather what he's trying to say is here, you have to partake of me. Or, as it says in verse 40, believe in me. Look to the Savior and believe. Whoever does shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's not, it's not meant to be a, a, a reference to uh, some ritualistic aspects of communion or the Lord's table or the Eucharist, whatever you call it, but rather it's a metaphorical way of referring to our belief in Jesus Christ. I like how one commentator helps us understand how communion fits here. He says, John 6 is not about communion, but communion is all about John 6. So John 6 is not telling us how we should take communion, but when we take communion, we should understand it in light of John 6. John 6 is saying we must believe that Jesus' life and death was given to us and we must embrace it. His metaphor is eat of it and believe in it so that we might have eternal life. And what do we do when we come to communion? We affirm that these symbols are but symbols of what Jesus Christ has done for us in His death. 
that we are believing in Him. And that's the point here. He is the only one who can provide life for us. Verse 55 brings back in the idea of the true bread where he says here, it's the, Jesus is true food. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, whoever partakes of me, whoever embraces me, whoever believes in me, he also will live because of me. Again, the exclusivity. There is no other way to gain true life, eternal life, apart from Jesus Christ. And then we come to the application. Verse 59 Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? He's not just referring here to the 12. He's referring to all of those who are the big group who are following him. Many of these disciples said, this is, this is hard. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? But in the end, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And He's not referring to His flesh that, that He's calling them to believe in, but rather their own flesh here. Your humanity, your human reasoning, your human desire for materialism, your minimizing God's work, your maximizing man's work, all of this is worthless to save you. It's no help at all. The Spirit gives life. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. The fact is, when presented with Jesus Christ, some show themselves to be false disciples, ultimately trusting in their own discernment attempting to find life through their own fleshly, natural reasoning and desires, and so they do not believe. Jesus knew this from the beginning. And it says, And this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Who of us can overcome our own sinful nature with our own strength? None of us can. We need the grace of God. We need the Jesus who provides life. And yet, what do we see? Jesus does not only point out the false disciples, but He also draws out the true disciples who trust God's wise provision after many of these disciples turn away, Jesus looks over to the twelve and says, how about you? Do you want to go away as well? And while the twelve disciples didn't right away understand the feeding of the five thousand plus, we see that they understood the teaching that Jesus has given. Because Simon Peter answered him, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? gets it. There's no one else. It's just you. 
You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you? You He goes on to say something about Judas. That's true. One of them would end up betraying him. But I I think there's a significance to Jesus' response. Did I not choose you? We did not first love him. He first loved us. God in his love sent his son Jesus Christ to the world to be the bread of life for all who would partake of him, all who would believe in him. And yet we're reminded throughout this chapter that it is God's divine sovereignty that draws us to himself. And so we even read here with the 12, did I not choose you? And in choosing them, he opened up for them the glories of the gospel. He opened up for them the glories of who he is so that they saw in him and in him alone eternal life. They saw in Him, in Him alone, the Holy One of God. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. But the Father, Jesus tells Peter and Mark, when He declares who Jesus is. It's not not our own flesh that brings us to it, but it's the glorious goodness of God. So we should celebrate the grace that we have been given. All who believe. And that's the call. That's the call today to you who are sitting there in doubt or in fear or do not know Jesus Christ. The call is for you to believe. But as we believe, what do we begin to realize? That it wasn't our strength that brought us to Him, but rather Him who came to us. He sought us. He drew us. We can rejoice in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the provision that You give in Jesus Christ. Not a provision that You were somehow coerced into giving. Not a provision that You were somehow um, strong-armed into providing, but one You provide freely and wholly of Your goodness and Your grace. And it is Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You for Him. We pray for those who may not know Him, have not trusted in Him, that they would come today. For He is the only bread that gives true eternal life. And we pray for those of us who have trusted Him. Lord, may we exalt Him more and more today. Because we know that our life truly comes through Him. Say this in Jesus' name. Amen.